Greetings, friends, family, strangers, and enemies of all kinds. I did that out of order, but such is the way of life, uh, this sweet life, some might say. Uh, welcome back to The Extra Milestone, your weekly cinemaholic spinoff, where we go back in time to discuss the classic films that have impacted the cinematic landscape violently and shaped it into what it is today. This is where we go back and look at those films. I am your host, as always, Sam Noland. I'm a staff writer for Cinemaholics. And with me, I have one of my very best friends in this entire world, the host of the Cinemaholics main show and just all around swell guy. It is my friend and your friend, I hope, John Negroni. John, welcome back. You know, in honor of the movie we're talking about, I'm going to mimic what you said earlier and say, hello, vagabonds clowns, paparazzi, and <laughs> debutantes. Of all kinds. Yes. Of all kinds, including Swedish actresses. And including especially Swedish actresses. And we not limited to. And not limited to, indeed. Yes, this is The Extra Milestone. And on this very episode that you're listening to right now, John, the time has come. Back in February... Uh, we were doing it a little bit differently where we had like a poll. Do you remember this? It seems like so long ago. For the month of February, we ultimately did Pinocchio, but one of the other movies on that list to talk about was Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita. Oh, yes. And it lost to Pinocchio. Somehow. And you were, you were very upset about that. Yes. I, to this day, it's a mystery as to how Pinocchio Legend was. has it, it was a landslide, but I maintain it was rigged. It also it was a landslide, and it may have been rigged. There's no reason it can't have been both. But yes, it, Pinocchio won by a lot. La Dolce Vita, I don't think, got a single vote except by John, which yeah. does not that's, matter that's as much accurate. as you might think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, the the thing with the extra milestone is that sometimes we don't necessarily fudge the release dates, but we sort of were flexible with it. So for instance, we pick a and lot choose of movies, the ones the release dates we want to go with. Yeah. So to, and it actually makes things a lot easier. There's not just one opportunity to talk about one film or another. We sometimes we get multiple chances. Sometimes there is only one release date. A lot of movies are like that, where it just releases wide and that's that. But a lot of movies are released at festivals, they're released at different times in multiple countries. And La Dolce Vita is one of them. It was released in Italy in February of 1960, but it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in France. In May of 1960, which is when it's held every year, as a result, a lot of uh, big prestige art house classics are actually eligible for the month of May. Uh, Julia Tatey and I just got to talk about one last week with uh, Jan Dielman. And so we're doing it again. Two we weeks should say in a row. This is, the, this is the film that won the Palme d'Or that year in 1960. Yes. We also right. could have gone with uh, April because it started showing in theaters in the United States around that time. So. Yeah, there were it's it's got a long complex uh release date history, but that's not important. What's important is that we're finally talking about John, how does it feel to finally be getting your wish? Yeah, I should be upfront with the listeners that this is one of my all-time favorite movies. This is my favorite movie we've talked about mm. on Extra Milestone to oh, date. No it's like above Seven Samurai and Sun Like a It Hot bold Witcher. statement. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. I do. I do like this movie more than Seven Samurai, okay. just barely. In fair, fact, fair enough. I after rewatching it for this, I decided you know what, enough is enough. It's been in my top ten for a long time. I moved it into the top five. It happened. Ooh. Breakfast at Tiffany's took a hit. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> the Mickey Rooney thing has been bugging me too much. And yeah. I, I had to do it. I had to push La Dolce Vita to my number five movie of all time. So there it is. That's fascinating. So I, t- so I, so you watched it just within the last couple of days. I take it. I've seen it twice in the last four months. Hmm. So I rewatched it in February because I, I saw the writing on the wall. I knew we were, I, I knew Pinocchio was going to win, <laughs> but I was like, who cares? I'm rewatching it. Don't tell you yeah, No reason why not. It again. Cool. Yeah. So, so, so you've seen it twice in the past four months. What is this like total? Is it like a dozen or two dozen or something like no, that? No, this is four or five times total. Okay. In the and last wh- six years. Six years. That's that's a long history. That's Something a lot of time like to reflect on it. I myself only just watched it uh, several months ago, just because I was. I decided I'm going to watch just all the movies eligible for February. We had like this really long period where yeah. we kept trying to do the episode, and it kept not working out. And I was like, with all this extra time, I'm going to do. I'm going to watch literally everything, and that happened to be one of them. So I checked it out, and then I saw it again just last night. John, I want to know what was what was uh, the first time that you saw like what was the context and what was sort of your reaction at the time yeah i had a phase where i was living in california for the first time and i was starting to get into the criterion films a little bit more Mm. Uh, i think it was it was not too long after the first time i went to the alamo draft house Mm. and i was going through fellini's uh videodrome rentals and all of that and i was like (laughs) oh man or i said videodrome it's video vortex videodrome there's yeah, a VHS slot in James Woods's torso. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But yeah, so I was looking through those and that's always fun, of course, because I, I really enjoy going through those director filmographies, but yeah, I was looking through it and I found, um, La Dolce Vita and I was like, oh, okay, this is something that I want to see. Hmm. I had heard about it. I had already seen eight and a half, which a lot of people say, no, that's the, that's the best Fellini movie. That's the one that is his most autobiographical. It's his follow-up. Autobiographical, eh? Yeah. Uh, that's Is that your Italian? Accent? That's I don't know what that was. Let's move on. <laughs> Regardless. Yeah. And so I saw it and I was like, oh, okay, three hours. That's fine. I can do that. I can watch three hours. And I fell in love. I This movie blasted me into like another time zone when I watched it the first time, specifically the Trevi Fountain which we'll talk about. I, I, I'm haunted by that scene. Like that is the main reason I rewatched the movie is to watch every second of that scene, starting with Anita Ekberg wandering the streets of Italy, the streets of Rome, late at night in 1960. And my gosh, does a movie hold up the way this movie holds up, Sam? I'm curious. Like, can you believe that this was shot then? Like it's so crisp, it's so fresh, it's it's yeah. just unbelievable. And I I don't know how you watched it, but most of the times I've rewatched it have been through like DVDs or rentals. Yeah. But recently the only way to watch it is through the film box, which is a channel on Prime Video. But yeah, yeah how did you see it? That's that is Exactly that. I uh, a few months ago when I was going to watch it, I was like, "Okay, where is it?" Turns out it's almost nowhere. Like it's not like all yeah. these other classics that are available on a, a litany of streaming services. It's relatively easy to find. This one is only on Amazon Prime. And get this, it's expiring in like two weeks. What do you want Very from sad. us, La Dolce Vita? Yeah. <laughs> so besides uh, purchasing the Criterion Blu-ray, which I take it you you possess that, is that correct? 
No, but I was looking at that this morning. I was like, I should probably just do this because the way I've been doing it is I just get it through the library. And yeah. because this is one of my favorites, I should just own it. It's funny that you mentioned the rentals at the draft house. We, I went with you to that very Alamo draft house right. and saw they have like this miniature video store up front. And one of them, I was leafing through the titles and I get to the L section and one of them I saw was La Dolce Vita. Do you remember this? I saw it and yeah. was like, oh, I've never actually seen this one. And you were like, Sam, you heathen. How could you? Was it La and, Dolce Vita? I thought it was a different Fellini film, but maybe I'm misremembering. No, no. It was, I, I remember very specifically it was that one because you said exactly what you said earlier in this episode, which is that that is one of the greatest movies of all time. And then here we, are, here we are a little over a year later. And then we saw Godzilla King of the Monsters later that night. And then you fell asleep <laughs> during it. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> that was a fun time. I wish we could have seen like a classic movie on that oh, screen. My. That would have been fantastic. I, I, to this day, somebody who loves me will hopefully take me to a, a screening of La Dolce Vita on the big screen. That would be like the greatest gift of all time. You know, I don't know what the situation out there in the Bay Area is, and this is a bit of a tangent, but it, in my area, a variety of theaters are doing like private screenings where you can select a movie if you have like a DVD or yeah. a digital copy or something. And I think it depends on the theater, but up to like five or 10 friends can have an entire auditorium all to yourself. And then they like sanitize it in between everyone going in and stuff. And so that's, that's something I've been strongly considering, but it doesn't seem like, uh, <laughs> first it, we got to find five or 10 friends. I got to find <laughs> at least four other friends. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't seem like the right environment to do it with like all this, you know, tension in the atmosphere and stuff i'd be sure. too busy i'd be too concerned about the workers of the theater get, ha, working at a yeah. theater myself uh but regardless i that could that could be interesting just seeing it in a theater completely alone i'd be very curious to i want to see with uh, a crowd That's i want to see advantage. anything with a crowd anything to get back into the theater sam it sounds to me like what you're looking for is the sweet life i'm looking for the sweet life or as they life? say in Mother Italy, I'm looking for La Dolce Vita, which is oh, the what movie a that we're talking about this week. John, I want you to let the listeners know in as few or as many sentences as you can, if they haven't seen it or if it's been a long time or even if they have and just want a refresher, what's like the gist of La Dolce Vita? If you had to summarize it, if you had to, if you no. had to pitch it to someone, how would sure. you describe it? Yeah, like what are you in for? Yeah. Well, you're in for about a three hour movie. First mm -hmm. of all, so just accept that um, it's about 180 minutes or so. Yeah, I think it's like 253 or something like that. You're going to get a series of almost episodic misadventures featuring a gossip journalist who lives in Rome and he lives what people outside of his life might perceive as a decadent lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And he goes through a lot of a lot of nights and mornings descending into these dark and sort of like morally bankrupt <laughs> areas and nightclubs and situations involving prostitutes where you see him sort of questioning the weird tension between humanism, like human hedonism and religion. This is a man who sees the appeal of religion, but he also sees the hypocrisy of Italian post-World War II culture, sort of looking at morality and religion as a cudgel or some sort of 
alien foreign thing that exists in the background this is a movie that opens with literally a statue of jesus christ being flown over rome yeah. the, the capital of the catholic church uh to the saint peter's cathedral but not only that but you have the helicopter right behind it trying to make a spectacle of it and there's a ton of scenes that are about the spectacle we make of religion and how people don't really apply the lessons and the morality and the dogma of religion to themselves. And so you're watching that entire thematic, dense narrative through this lonely, desperate, kind of pathetic man who lives his life trying to trying to learn from other people, but then ultimately being let down by everyone. And he can see this sort of purity. He can see this sort of lifestyle just out of reach. But it, what gets in the way is his sin and the, the seven sins, the seven hills of Rome and, and whatnot, and how that keeps him from any sort of self-actualization. He just idealizes everything. And it's hard because you're going to watch this movie and you're probably going to look at this guy and be like, he's terrible. He is. He's toxic. He cheats. He has no sort of like sense of self. But that's really the point of this movie. And that's you're going to be getting one of what I consider the best breakdowns, one of the best movies talking about the relationship between man and God. It's like the painting of God and um, Adam like kind of personified through an Italian <laughs> post neorealism film. And I would also say if you're a fan of Fellini, you're also going to be getting what I think is like his midpoint film. This is like right in the middle of his earlier work, which was more of the Italian neorealism stuff like La Strada and, you know, films like Bicycle Thieves, which I know you're a big fan of Sam. Mm-hmm. That's the more grounded Italian cinema and then post La Dolce Vita, that's when you start getting Fellini when he goes super abstract. He gets extremely absurd and decadent. And this movie is like a beautiful combination of the two. If I had to, if I had to met, met, metaphor it a bit, I don't know if there's a verb for metaphor, <laughs> but uh, it's it's literally like coffee itself. Like um, the bitter coffee is the neorealism and the like the milk. The, the sweet milk, the dolce, the sugar, all that, it's like blended together into one drink. And that's, that represents his the rest of his career. I could not have said it better myself. I hadn't thought of that in terms of uh, the larger context of Fellini's career because the movie he made, uh, if not right after this, then very shortly after this was Eight and a Half, which is extremely abstract. Um, touches on a lot of the similar themes from what I remember of sort of that hedonistic lifestyle and show business, uh, specifically as it relates to like the Italian culture and everything. I, I think melancholy is kind of the key word here, right? Or maybe maybe just sort of bitter sweetness sort of permeating yeah. throughout this entire thing. It's that sarcasm. Shot, like the name yeah. of the film is sarcastic. It's not, it's, it's, which is, can be hard to pick up on because the first time I was not really keyed into that as much. Um, the first, one of the first shots at the very least that you mentioned earlier of the helicopter flying into Rome, I think really grabbed my attention right off the bat, specifically on the second viewing, because it takes place in Rome, which is a city that has had, has been portrayed very interestingly across uh, film history, especially in this first 
half or so of the 20th century, in my experience at least, where it's this beautiful city with all this culture and all this lavish, luxurious happenings and goings on and stuff. And we see a lot of that in this movie, a lot of extravagant parties and 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 things of that nature. But also it's a city just covered in, or not covered in, uh, populated by ruins and remnants of the old world. Again, you mentioned the Catholic church, that yeah. how that still permeates very heavily throughout the city. And so it's very much this hot and cold sort of, impression that we get from this movie and others it's a paradox it's the highest of highs and the lowest of lows and we see both of those in this movie and how they sort of clash with each other and don't really mix well and we see that we see that as a result in marcello uh i want to say it right marcello mastriani is that right yeah marcello mastriani mastriani's character who also named marcello coincidentally enough so John, I want to I want to get a little I want to get into some specifics here. Uh, what is maybe of these of the episode uh, episodes of this movie? What's one that sort of stands out to you uh, in particular when thinking about it in hindsight or while watching the movie or what have you? Well, there's two, and I think the first one I already mentioned. It's the most iconic episode, and that is when Anita Ekberg's character shows up. So she is a Swedish actress. And from the very beginning of that scene, you're introduced this character, Sylvia, and she is like this flashy, just absurdly beautiful woman. And it begins with this like stage photo op and, you know, her kind of being taken down into the kennels of this society and, and everybody wants a piece of her, but you see Marcello like lusting after her from afar and, and it culminates in the Trevi Fountain scene, which is, you know, it's the film's like central scene. And I think it's the scene that if you're not sold on the movie already, I think that's when it's going to probably get you. And if it doesn't get you at that point, it, it probably won't ever, uh, at least on the first viewing. Marcello, where are you? Where did it go for that milk? My goodness. Listen. Silvia. 
I mean, you can look at popular culture for the decades following and the Trevi Fountain scene continues to just be such a piece of history, film history now. I think that's the major contribution that this film lends uh, is that scene as well as the namesake of the paparazzi. It, it's a word that kind of, I think it means sparrow or bird or something. And this film sort of introduced that, I not the idea of hounding photographers, after yeah. like celebrity gossip culture, but uh, specifically there's a character whose last name is paparazzo. So mm-hmm. now we have paparazzi. It's just something that's very, very influential that this film provides. The other scene though, because the trivia found one is a very obvious one. I think a lot of people would say that, but sure. the other one that's always stood out to me and it's so much more important than I think other people realize is there is an episode that happens right after Marcello has just sort of been not lectured, but, condescended to by somebody he looks up to um, the character Steiner who tells him you got to write that book you got to write that novel and it sort of kicks Marcello into shape and he's like you know what I'm going to do it so in the next episode we see him with his typewriter he's out in the country which was it's a metaphor for his roots because we find out that's where he's from is like the countryside and it represents a more pure origin for him And there is a scene where he sees this young girl who represents that side of him, that side of him that was innocent and that side of him that was able to think clearly about the world, but he's gotten so bogged down and like the moral hypocrisy of his time. That to me is Fellini at his most autobiographical at this moment. in this movie because he's telegraphing to the audience like this is how i'm feeling right now and it's beautiful because he he's able to criticize his lifestyle that he's experiencing right now in italian high society without punching at it he's recognizing simultaneously that he's part of it and he can show that it's it is fun like it's a fun life it's a it's a life that's full of short-term pleasures and there are things about it that are not inherently bad but as we see it's a metaphor for how it descends like the more and more marcello gets caught up in this life he descends into the worst version of himself and it, it culminates in the closing scene but i think that closing scene doesn't work for very obvious reasons without this middle one hmm. featuring the typewriter by the beach with this young country girl who shows up later. And it it just absolutely floors me every time, especially when you rewatch it and you know what's about to happen. You know that what happens with Steiner is going to come about any second. So That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. I believe the uh, little vignette that you're describing, according to the little bit of research I did, is sort of viewed as like kind of the midpoint of the movie where it doesn't necessarily fit in with any of the seven distinct chapters that comprise the bulk of the plot of the movie. But it's also, it's sort of insubstantial, it's sort of incidental, but it does kind of unlock the entire character. So I think that's very fascinating that you say that. Now, I think it's what you just brought up with how this lifestyle has its setbacks, but also is very intensely rewarding that's something that I found easier to latch onto on uh, the second viewing, specifically in contrast with some of Fellini's other movies, which I got to say, I have had trouble really digging Fellini's stuff. I've seen, I think, like four or five by this point, uh, including La Dolce Vita. And 
none of them have yet to completely blow me away. And I think part of that is because of that disconnect. We see these characters in La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half specifically that are leading, leading, is that the right word? Leading these incredibly lavish lifestyles. The regular average audience member watching that is just thinking to themselves, oh, you poor show business people like with your problems that don't affect literally anyone else. It's easy to be rubbed the wrong way by that. I think specifically with eight and a half with the way it's kind of just a story about some older artist just sort of losing inspiration a little bit just out of personal uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Just sort of a feeling of impetus. Impotence? I've, I don't, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. That's right. Impotence. The fact that this movie is about a journalist, someone who's very much on the fringes of that and gets to yeah. live in that world, but also is clearly like the other, you know what I'm saying? Like is not actually involved in all of it, just sort of gets to be there, just gets a little begrudging pass into it. And we see Yeah, the scraps. We see Marcello interact with a lot of those artists, some uh, poets, writers, actors, filmmakers, what have you. We see that getting to getting to sort of get a, a little bit of a glimpse into that world while also not being able to fully uh indulge in it is kind of even the worst part so it's actually easier to latch onto. i find it more approachable in that way it's not about the strife that comes with luxury it's yeah. it's it's sort of about just the way that it can infect those of us who do not get to live in that world i was i'm curious is that something that ever affected you in any sort of way in any of the viewings over the years i was wondering how you approach that sort of aspect of the movie. No, I, I think you are spot on about the experience that Marcello is like kind of languishing in, in this movie. That's why he wants to write a novel for that exact reason is because he feels like as a celebrity journalist, he's not creating anything and he's constantly around people who are, and they seem like they're having fun. They seem like they're having the sweet life all around yeah. him. Uh, that's why he idolizes Steiner because Steiner has this apartment that poets and folk singers and all these interesting people show up to. And he feels like, well, I, I can't do that. That's not me because my life is empty because I just report on what these celebrities are up to. And what I think people can latch on to, because you're right that, yeah, it's, if it comes across as somebody complaining about, oh, woe is me, I have this really fun lifestyle then yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I feel like audience members would, uh, and some probably would read this into the film and say that, yeah, this is not for me. I can't connect with this character. But mm -hmm. I think the real emotional through line here is this is what it's, this is almost sort of what it's like to lust after fame mm -hmm. and lust after celebrity. And we spend so much of our time, a lot of us who feel any sort of ambition, wishing we had what other people have. And, you know, I mentioned the seven deadly sins. One of the main ones in this movie is envy. And that's a big reason why Marcello just can't seem to really understand like how, why he feels like his life is incomplete. And you see him start to maybe get to that point that maybe he is making too much of celebrity culture when his dad shows up and his dad is sort of like reveling in this lifestyle. And ultimately that impotence happens for him yeah. um, in a physical way. 
And I think that's when it starts to make Marcello realize what's going on. But then something happens in the film that I'll just say there's a reason he goes from being a celebrity journalist, which has like kind of a vein of objectivity of like, you know, independent writing to becoming just a publicist. And yeah, that's, that's kind of what the film's getting at, I think in that vein. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that is like for people who might watch this and say like, this film's too much of its time. This is really just Fellini commenting on what life was like in 1960 Italy. It is, but I think it does match what's going on today. It's very relevant. It's very speaking to you. Like whenever I get any sort of notifications or I see any sort of news story about this person is pregnant and this person is dating this person. And it's like, well, Dolce Vita already tore that idea new one <laughs> 60 <laughs> years ago. And yet, you know, it's still such a prevailing force in society. We see multiple times throughout the movie, the way that the, I'll just call them the press, the paparazzi, whatever, whatever term you want to use. They're sort of always there. It's as if they're waiting at any second to just pounce on yeah. any inkling of a story, including uh, multiple occasions where immediately following a tragedy, there's clearly a a disdain for the press in this movie. I think that's very clear. I'm I'm fascinated by by uh, all the stuff you've talked about so far. I want to know. We've mentioned a couple of the chapters, a couple of the events in the movie. I'm wondering, even if. Even if it's just to sort of revisit them and jog through the happy memories that you have of this movie, what are what what's another chapter that you find yourself especially taken by that we haven't brought up yet? I'd say the turning point that you just brought up hmm. is worth evaluating, and specifically be, the way it starts. Like it starts with Marcello um, having this really really bad argument with Emma. So Emma is his partner who he constantly cheats on and how he like he just sort of keeps her around because he feels like that's what he's supposed to do and yeah. you see the battle between himself within himself of like should i marry this woman should i you know be with her and r part of the reason he wants that is because he is envious of steiner he sees steiner with like the perfect wife the perfect kids and he thinks that's my path to being happy and there as soon as he and Emma are finally reunited and they've gotten through this issue, he finds out the worst. He finds that Steiner has murdered his own children yeah. and himself. Mm -hmm. And it's the part of the film where Marcello completely loses faith. And what's so rewarding about rewatching this film so many times is you notice the little details. You notice how Fellini is not using music to tell you the emotion of the scene he's using the filmmaking he is avoiding close-up shots during that scene where the press swarm steiner's wife and she learns what happens to her family in the worst most terrible way it's so depressing yeah. but you don't get a close-up of her face you only see Marcello's reaction to what's going on. You only see the paparazzi making a spectacle of it. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of like little moments like that. Like the fact that Marcello can't, he's always comparing himself to someone Fellini chooses two shots. There's so many two shots in this movie. Yeah, they really and are. It, it's wonderful. It just, it, it tells you what Marcello is thinking in a very restrained performance without beating you over the head with it. 
That's I love that you brought up the cinematography um, and the way it just sort of doesn't try to do any work that the actual scenery and the actual dialogue and the writing and what have you uh, doesn't do any of the work that that stuff doesn't. It's very objective, if that's possible, for cinematography. I want to make sure I, I give credit uh, cinematography by Otello Martelli. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that somewhat correctly. And yeah, it really just lets the scenery just sort of sing for itself, not even speak for itself, sing gorgeously for itself. Uh, I mentioned that it takes place in Rome earlier and it really just it really just shines in this movie. This is one of the best. There, there's there's d- certainly a subgenre of Rome movies, and this is certainly one of them. And this is one of the most pleasing, I think. You know, it, when you were mentioning Marcello's wife, Emma, it's the weirdest thing ever, and it has nothing to do with anything. But you know what character that almost reminded me, kind of? It's a completely different genre, a completely different set of circumstances. But I got this weird flashback of the protagonist's wife from Fahrenheit 451 with the way that she's sort of resigned to realizing that this man doesn't love her anymore. Right down to the first time we see her, he comes home and she's passed out. That's exactly what happens in Fahrenheit 451. I just, I'd never put that together until right this minute. Who knows? Maybe, maybe uh, Federico Fellini was a Ray Bradbury fan. We'll never know. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that, that novel did come out right before they filmed the sh- movie. So I would, yeah, would not, actually that's not right before even, I think it was 53. I want to say it was when, yeah, Aaron so not even out. a decade, relatively close in the grand scheme of things. Time, but is regardless, a time is a construct, but that's a conversation for another time. So we've talked about a variety of events, a lot of the big ones. I think one of the, unless there was something else that you wanted to touch on and by all means, the conclusion of this movie is, really fascinating and i would love to hear your take on that sure yeah we've we've touched on most of it you know we we didn't get into one of the big ones in the very beginning which is when we see marcello have this weird sort of like affair with a celebrity in the basement of a prostitute yeah (laughs) and we also have a, a few different well, if I had to criticize like one aspect of the cinematography, that maybe oh, some people, I know, I know, I'm not really criticizing <laughs> it, but I'm saying that some people might say it's a little bit too on the nose. It's a little bit too tedious. It's mm. the whole thing where he's going up and downstairs all the time. I mean, it's a little yeah. bit less subtle. It's it, it doesn't really bother me. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. There's a there's a place for a little bit more extravagant cinematography. I can't necessarily say this movie would be hurt by it. I think what we got is fine, uh, sure. photography wise. He he does a good job with it sometimes too. Like when he and Steiner go up into the loft of the church, it's a little bit less tedious. Like the movie doesn't give you enough time to sit and really think about it, so that it it kind of hits you in a more subtle way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, getting into the the ending, it's it's almost hard to watch because it is like it starts with a night sequence where Marcello is a little bit older and there's this very strange like orgy that breaks out. <laughs> and yeah. what I like about this scene is that it it does feel like we're getting into Fellini's like later work. This is mm-hmm. the part of the movie where it's becoming more and more off the rails where you see characters like pushing their faces against the window and like their, their faces are being like, you know, distorted. And that is like the Fellini that I think a lot of people know the filmmaker for, but 
it, it is something that like the mayhem of this scene and, and the deterioration of everything, it's a little hard to watch. It's a little bit like, man, how far has this guy fallen? And especially when he's going around and he's drunk and he's pathetic and it, it goes on and it goes on. But then the dawn sequence, when you juxtapose the ending scene with the beginning scene, you have, you literally begin the scene with like Jesus Christ in the sky over Rome. Mm -hmm. And then you end with like this monstrosity fish that some people <laughs> say is like a kind of a supposed to be a Leviathan sort of thing, but it looks like a stingray. It's a big stingray that they pull out of the ocean with this net. Like it's nothing like that. Would, that kind of, made me laugh a little bit how it almost seems like this cabal of just of just rambunctious youth that that Marcello has fallen in with in the past couple of scenes it's like just a thing that they do on a daily basis like that's kind of the vibe i get i know they probably don't but that gave you a little bit of enjoyment and it's sort of it's it's sort of fellini leveling with us almost as if to say like yeah this is who they are they are this weird like there's no going back from this all that stuff that happened the night before and pulling a stingray out of the ocean they're unusual and and marcello is feels yeah. sort of out of place with this them. is what they've earned the movie starts with these people this like this man this journalist chasing after jesus literally in a helicopter not being able to keep up with it because they have to stop and have this weird miscommunication with a bunch of young women and sin gets in the way, right? That's the religious allegory. And it ends with them at, out of the Bible. It's a fisherman thing. They, they fish out this monster and that's what they get. Like that is what they get for this life. Hmm. And there's, it's still not over. Like Marcello still has a chance because the, the young waitress from before is not too far away. It's just within reach. And all Marcello has to do is go to her and have this exchange but he he can't understand it so he gives up and what makes this scene perfect is the look on her face she resigns to it she's like yeah whatever i don't care and it's speaking to how fellini looks at god saying you need me more than I need you. And it's a perversion. It's blasphemous because the idea that God is love, the idea that God will love you and, and yearns for you is being challenged here. But Fellini's sort of saying like that is sort of given humanity an out with their spiritual destinies of always just assuming God's always going to be there, but not understanding that we need God so much more than we think God needs us. And it's about that hypocrisy of thinking that we're so important in the grand scheme of things. And it's it's a tough thing because I think a lot of people who grew up very religious, like I did, look at this sort of thing and we feel a conflict because we're taught to believe we're worth love. And in many ways we are. And I still believe that. But I do think what's valuable about this movie is that it challenges that in its most extreme direction or its extreme consequence is that we think we're so worth love that we can't handle it when reality challenges that in any sort of way. So the scene, this ending scene is perfect. It's complete bliss. It, at least if it, if it gets you to rethink some of your preconceived notions of what makes us worth love without making you go into despair, I think it's dangerous for sure. <laughs> that is some really beautiful stuff that you just touched on. I think 
Yeah, I, I got nothing. That's I, I love all of that. Little little tip of the cap to you, John, for that one. I, I know wanna... some people are like, I love Extra Milestone because John goofs off. Not for this one. No, not for this one. I, I can tell you I can tell you have a deep, deep connection with this movie, and I've loved getting to hear it over the course of this episode. I think I just want to touch on sort of how my experience it with the movie might kind of compare to yours. Uh, listener, as you can probably tell, I do not have nearly as nuanced of a perspective on this movie, if only as a function of time. It's it's only been several months since I first saw it. I do not have the I do not have the growth with it that that you have clearly had. And so I look forward to perhaps getting that growth. But also, if there's something that sort of held me back on the first viewing of La Dolce Vita as a whole, with across all of the chapters and vignettes and such, it's that I had trouble picking up on sort of the melancholy reflection of it all. I think and I think it's I think it's my fault. I think I wasn't paying close enough attention to the very downplayed performance of Marcello Mastriani, the way that we can just see him slowly slowly resign himself to the idea that maybe this is all there is. Maybe it doesn't get better than this. Maybe some of us are just destined to not reach that same level that we see so many people reach. And it's we, we set these goals for ourselves, and maybe they're not meant to be reached. But with the second viewing, I feel like I was definitely able to key into that a lot more, especially with that concluding scene that you just broke down so wonderfully. It is a deep movie. It's a layered movie. I cannot wait to explore it more. And I love, I love everything that you've said, John. I thank you for letting me witness your wonderful interpretations of it. I'm, I'm curious, what did we miss? Is there anything else that, uh, that you maybe wanted to touch on that we didn't? Of course, there's sure. plenty and plenty to talk about. But for, for the purposes of this episode, I'm curious, what else, what else is rattling around in that John noggin of yours? Just, just a few more things, and. Honestly, I could talk about this movie all day. We didn't sure. even get into so many other scenes. Like this movie is just so dense. Like we didn't get into like the whispering between the rooms. Uh, we didn't get into all of the Anita Ekberg stuff. And yeah. we it, didn't get so into much. Frankie Stout, which is a riot of a character. Yeah, the the whole clown thing. You know, the trumpet and the balloon and all the stuff with his father. It, it is just something else but you know we don't have all day <laughs> but yeah a few less things that i do want to touch on um i do want to say like kind of in response to what you're you're kind of trying to figure out with the melancholy and and marcello and everything it's difficult because his character kind of is hot and cold to reference how you described the movie a little bit earlier but or how you how this movie views italy and rome sure. but that's kind of how marcello is he can be very passive and reactionary, very quiet until something triggers him. But then yeah. he can also be very aggressive. Yeah, we we see that in the uh, ending sort of orgy scene. Yeah. We see that side of him come out. And I think the heart of this movie is just that we spend a lot of time trying to figure this guy out. But he's also trying to figure himself out. Hmm. And that is, that's it. That's the movie. And I think it only works because of that performance. I think Marcello's performance just completely sells who this guy is, who he's trying to be, and who we see him as. And it's like this perfect sync of all three of those layers. And I'll also say, first time I watched this, I didn't know how I felt. I, I think that it's it's hard to love this movie the first time. I don't think I know anybody who has fully loved it 
after one or two viewings. I think it is something that ages better. It ages with time, uh, ages well. And even though some elements of it don't age well, I guess, like in a PC way, but you know, what does? But in terms of like everything that's in this movie, it overwhelms you. And it can be hard to sort of be like, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. Like, come on, Fulini. Like, there's so much going on here. What do you want? And but if you if you keep watching it or if you allow yourself to sort of dig into it, then yeah, you you get a, a richer experience, a sweeter experience, if you will, the more and more mm. you see it. And the last thing I'll say, costume design. Holy cow. Oh my. Yeah. Uh, won the Academy Award. It was nominated for a ton of Academy Awards, I think 12. And it did win the Oscar for best costumes. I forget who the costume designer was. I think Pierre something. I, I will I, look uh, it up right now. Blanking on the name. But yeah, it just it was perfect about the costume design is how understated it is. You could see people wearing these clothes today. That's how timeless it is. And you have to like remind yourself that it's 1960, but at the same time, like this movie is such a blessed time capsule of like you get such a rich sense of what life was like in this time period, what people were like in a real authentic way. And so, yeah, it's just on that merit of getting a sort of slice of the sweet life. I keep saying that. Yeah. You uh, you get that with this movie and then some. Okay. I'm looking at the uh, best costume design, black and white. I'm actually, I don't see it here are, are you sure it was nominated oh yeah yeah it definitely it definitely won the award i don't think it won any other awards but it was a film that was very successful uh, box office wise it made it a lot of money it was a big hit with critics uh, like i said won the palm door it's kind of funny because in its in its time people were so scared of this movie because of what people saw, as I kind of mentioned earlier, but like the sacrilegious nature of it, the blasphemy, mm. it starts with like an image of a statue of Jesus being hauled by technology. And that was something that really rubbed the Catholic church the wrong way. I, I believe, <laughs> I, bet. I believe Fellini was almost like excommunicated over this movie, but you can see that that was a very dated like attitude toward religion that we, of course, as a society, as a society, we've changed our views quite a bit on what's acceptable for mm -hmm. commentary on religion. And I think we're better for it. We're better for Fellini taking those risks. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, just to update on the costume design, I figured out what happened. Evidently, by Academy rules, the movie counted as a 1961 release. So I was okay. looking at the wrong ceremony. Uh, that costume designer is Piero Gerardi. Ah, uh, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. I have two more questions for you. One of them is a little bit arbitrary, but I'm curious. If you had to choose one, pick one vignette out of this movie to keep out of the rest of them. Oh, so we lose all the others. We not necessarily lose all the others, but just what's one that that you find yourself most drawn to over the years? Most drawn to? I, I feel like that's two different questions because if I had to keep one, it would probably be the Trevi Fountain because that yeah. one is probably the best at being standalone. It manages to first of all it's a, a an incredible feat of filmmaking. The fact that they were able to film this and that Anita Ekberg was in that fountain in that cold weather and able to <laughs> shoot all of those scenes. It's just incredible like yeah. that they pulled this off. And it sums up a lot of the movie's ideas and and really Marcello's like character. One that stands out the most though, I think like the one with the most complete arc would probably be the scene where his father visits. Yep, that that's really the one. is like a movie unto itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that one is really worth keeping. 
I was going to say the exact same thing. So that's good to know. And then also for my, for my second question, for someone, for someone like me who is maybe having trouble latching on to what's the phrase I'm looking for, the, the sort of stalwart ambiguity of it, like not giving any answers very deliberately, what would you recommend that person do to have the right mindset going into this? Because I still feel like there is a third viewing of this movie where it's really going to click for me. Obviously, I can appreciate a lot of it. Uh, and and especially after this conversation, there's so much that I hadn't considered before. <laughs> but I still just think there's just one little piece that hasn't clicked in my mind. What's What would you advise to someone having never seen it before? It's tough because everybody's different. We all prepare for long movies in different ways. I can only say sure. for me when I need to be in the right mindset it it depends a lot on the viewing setup you know like if i tried to watch this movie on my phone or if i tried to watch it like on an ipad or something in bed like i just don't think i would be immersed Mm -hmm. i think it sort of requires you to be a little bit less cozy because you need to be fully alert you know like i think this is a this is a decent like couch and tv watch just because it allows you to focus a little bit better you can keep up with the subtitles probably a little bit better because they're a little bit bigger. Yeah. And because it, it, one thing that's kind of jarring about this movie for a lot of people is the way everything is dubbed. And I think that that problem can be exas- exacerbated if you're watching in like a smaller screen because it's harder and harder to connect with the movie when it feels like the voices aren't syncing up. And so that's something that a TV watch can sort of help mask a little bit. Never seen this on the big screen, so I don't know if that would be the ultimate uh. way, probably, but who knows? I think, though, this is a movie that you can watch alone and get a lot out of it. I just think that you need to sort of turn off the distractions, like turn your phone off, um, don't have technology around, see if you can watch it alone, either late at night or, you know, so that the, the other things, the beckoning things of life don't get in the way. And, you know, make sure you eat well before. I, fa- I feel like I'm talking like somebody's mom here. It's like, don't forget to no, eat no. your dinner. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you don't get distracted by hunger. Yes, uh, which does happen, especially for long movies like this. Yeah, I, I would recommend, you know, for people who are of age, maybe having a nice glass of wine. Mm. So you can sort of get caught up in the, the immersive world building of this something have like an italian themed event maybe because (laughs) i think honestly i think one of the things that will attract people who haven't seen this before or maybe they they're trying to rewatch it is to just revel in the entire like italianness of it (laughs) and like the wonderful like how electric and warm this world is fellini is so good at creating worlds and this particular one is one of his best especially when it comes to just the way he depicts rome so i I would say those are a few little little tips i will definitely take those to heart yeah that's a very good idea of sort of trying to in our own way sort of replicate sort of the vibe of this movie sort of the extravagant vibe i think create sort of a luxurious atmosphere but also be ready to see the warts in that luxury i think that's what this movie is very much about i do have a i just an abysmal viewing setup so that could very well be part of it so i really need to i really need to invest in something better god i miss theaters but don't we all john there's one last bit of business that we need to take care of lately on the extra milestone podcast we have been not just talking about the classic movies but also recommending other movies that perhaps were influenced by those classic movies or have a similar vibe or maybe even came before i'm very curious putting in the extra and those extra milestones aren't you yes we stand by our title 
every step of the way. John Negroni, I'm curious, what is a movie or perhaps more than one, because I actually have two, that you would recommend to someone as perhaps a supplemental viewing of La Dolce Vita? Well, I have two. And I'm going to start with the most obvious, which okay. is a movie we've already mentioned, Eight and a Half. Yeah. I think especially if you've never seen it before, um, then you should absolutely watch it. I think it's the one Fellini film I would, if I was putting a top 10 list of his movies, that at least the ones that I've seen, I haven't seen every single one. But I think those are the two that are in most like battle <laughs> because they're both so great. Yeah. And I'd say that, yeah, it's a wonderful follow-up. So if you could start with this film and then watch Eight and a Half, you'll really get a great encompassing picture of what Fellini's filmmaking was like and that can open up his filmography to you. So there's a practical uh, reason behind that, but that's pretty obvious. So I'd say one that's a little bit more unexpected hmm. is a 2016 film that not enough people watched, and that mm -hmm. is Silence, the Martin Scorsese huh. film. And the reason I pick this one is yes, because, please. first of all, if if you were looking at anybody who sort of was the successor of Fellini, I think you can make a really great case for Martin Scorsese, an Italian-American. Mm. And he is somebody who really took a lot of lessons from Fellini without outright replicating his body of work. And you can tell Scorsese not worshipped Fellini, but definitely was heavily inspired by Fellini's films, uh, especially this time period, because Scorsese was like growing up as a filmmaker in the aftermath of these groundbreaking works. And while Fellini was still, or while Fellini was still making movies in the 1970s that were mm -hmm. very influential on Scorsese. And I think- And the 60s, Scorsese got started early. That's true, that's true. Uh, I'm thinking of like, you know, some of his 70s work. And the some good of his, stuff. Yeah, sure. <laughs> mean Streets, I guess, is probably what first comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I guess for Silence, which is a 2016 film, it might be a little bit of a surprise, but I think that is Scorsese at his most mature. And I think that that is him doing something similar with Fellini when it comes to religion and recognizing, I know some people will probably say like Last Temptation of Christ or something, but I think Silence is the one that is Scorsese at his most astute with this subject matter. It's a totally different country. It's Japan, totally different time period, totally different style. But it's a similar experience of watching a filmmaker question his own ideas in a way that is just lavish with cinematography and costume design. And I think after being transported to 1960s Rome, I think it's very much worth being transported to medieval Japan mm -hmm. through the lens of Portuguese missionaries. Uh, if you haven't seen Silence, it stars Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, Liam Neeson. It's an incredible cast, an incredible movie. But for some reason, it just sort of got overlooked by a lot of people who thought it was kind of tedious, uh, which some people also say about the Dolce Vita. So yeah. I think uh, if you can get into one, you might be able to get into the other. That is absolutely fascinating. I never would have guessed that in a million years. But now that you bring up all those all those points, I'm very intrigued. Yeah, it's been I haven't seen Silence since it uh, since it first came out, but I've been curious to go back. Maybe now is the time. Uh, Silence, I imagine, is relatively easy to find. Eight and a half is on the Criterion channel, as it should be. Why La <laughs> yeah. Dolce Vita isn't on there, I am not entirely sure, but perhaps someday. someday it will. Yes. I have two recommendations as well. The first one, and they're both from the 1960s, actually. The first one is really only really only has an aesthetic similarity. It's only in the photography that 
these movies are really connected. They're about very different things from very different filmmakers. But John, have you ever seen Orson Welles's The Trial? I have not actually. It is a movie released in 1962, I believe, starring Anthony Perkins as a man who gets accused of a crime and they don't tell him what the crime is. It's based on the Franz Kafka novel and it has all these just ludicrous Kafka-esque rabbit holes that the character goes down. Orson Welles plays an, uh, an advocate in the movie and it's... A really layered story. I'm not entirely sure what it's about. It's been a while since I've seen it. But one thing that I will never forget is the look of this movie. It looks so much like Rome to the point where I actually think it might have been filmed there. I really should have looked that up. But it just has that exact same feeling where it's all these buildings really close together, these tall buildings, but also it feels like a landscape at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Like we very much get that same sense of Rome in La Dolce Vita and other movies set in Rome around the same huh. time. And I just, I immediately thought of the trial both times while seeing this. It is, it is a very visually <laughs> distinctive movie uh, and it's Orson Welles. So, you know, it's going to have some fascinating ideas in it. Uh, that is but the- fascinating. Cause I've always wanted to watch that. I know it, a lot of people consider it really great. I think Welles said it was his best movie. I think and, so too. Uh, think, he said, he said it was one of the best at least. Yeah. And I know Roger Ebert called it a masterpiece at one point. So yeah, it's just a big gap for me. <laughs> so oh, I'll have to, to look into that. That's uh, you said that's Anthony Perkins. Yeah. All right. And there's a, there's a famous story of Orson Welles and Peter Bogdanovich. What I forget if it was right when it was released or at a screening later on, but they were in a theater watching it with a bunch of other people there and they were dying laughing while everyone else was taking it really seriously as like a dramatic artistic story. So I think that's take that for what it's worth, but they they view it as something of a comedy, perhaps an ironic comedy. Who knows what it, what it, the actual meaning behind it is, but I digress. My second recommendation, I'm curious if you've seen this movie, John, from 1966. Have you ever seen John Frankenheimer's Seconds? No, I haven't seen that. Oh, fascinating. It is a science fiction movie starring Rock Hudson about an older man who is completely dissatisfied, completely disenfranchised with his entire life and goes to this shady corporation that says for a for a for a fee they will fake his death and surgically reconstruct his face to make him into a younger man so he can start a completely new life. It's almost like yeah, this, I've heard of this It's almost like this dark demented witness protection program almost the reason i thought of the image where he has like the bandage like wrapped around his face and it's yeah horrifying there are some really horrifying images of having to do with the actual surgical procedure itself the reason i thought of it is because of actually the scene we brought up a few times in la dolce vita that orgy kind of thing near the end there's kind of a similar scene in seconds involving grape stomping weirdly enough like there's this really energetic grape stomping party with a bunch of young naked people and then there's this old guy who looks like a young guy and is just has has no idea what's going on as and has fallen down this rabbit hole it really reminded me of that same story of just trying to reckon with your own life and reflecting on it and realizing is it worth it? Is anything worth it? 
what is what is even our purpose here and it's really stylish it's really gripping it's really intense and i really really like it i only just got to see it recently uh it was expiring off the criterion channel but it's but it's elsewhere it's easy to find uh, i'm always down to watch something with rock hudson um after especially after watching hollywood the netflix series which kind of Mm -hmm. is like a alternative reality to what his career would have been like if he had been able to be out as a gay actor especially because that was you know his heyday really was like the 40s and 50s so i don't know too much about his filmography in the 60s i admittedly it doesn't go much beyond seconds but uh regardless it's a really fantastic one i haven't actually seen that uh series on netflix but i've been meaning to check that out i don't know if you would like it but i think you should definitely try it out it's i don't uh, know it's something else my taste is very strange, John. Yeah. There's no predicting. <laughs> I, I gave up trying a long time ago. As well, you should have. And with that, I believe that is our show. John, thank you so much for coming on to talk La Dolce Vita. I know you were looking forward to it, and I could tell that uh, that you had a lot to say, and I'm glad you said it because it was all yes, fascinating. Thank you, Sam, for making it happen. And I'm so, I have to apologize to Nino Rota for not mentioning the music mm. enough in this because it's so perfect it really is yeah it's it's not in your face but when it's there it really makes an impact mostly diegetic too if i recall so yeah i think so too there's a lot of there's a lot of like jazz bands and things of that nature oh we gotta stop her we're gonna keep talking for another hour we're gonna keep talking about it yes (laughs) that is our show that was the extra milestone and this was the 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 capper for the month of may so next week we're moving on to june and june is an enormous month throughout all of history it has been just a huge source of quality cinema so we got a lot a lot a lot of good stuff lined up over the course of the next couple weeks and i cannot wait to get to it but before then we must close this chapter john let let them know where can they find you on the interwebs if they don't know where to already two easy places go on twitter at John Agroni and cinemaholics.com. Cinemaholics.what? Cinemaholics.com, Sam. Have you forgotten? <laughs> oh, <laughs> and the, that's how it. the tables have turned. <laughs> but yes, that's where you'll find the main show, of course. Every week, Will Ashton and myself discuss the latest films while you, Sam, you go back in time. You uh, you break all the uh, you break out the old time machine. And yes. uh, it's always fun to listen. <laughs> the Wayback Machine. I have access to it and I make yeah. use of it every single week here on the Cinemaholics feed. I'm also at Twitter at Nolan Sam. Sam Nolan was taken, still drives me nuts, but what are you going to do? Gotta and keep I'm bringing also, it up. Got to keep They'll bringing find, it up. We'll hear this eventually. And then... I, that, I Honestly, there's a possibility that that will happen because they do not use the account anymore. And so maybe they just, they're just letting it collect dust. Maybe once they know that someone deserving of it really needs it then they'll change your mind but until such a day comes i am at nolan sam and with that i believe that's our show from the internet colorado i'm sam noland and from the internet california which is too far away from the internet rome i'm john and we'll see you on the next extra milestone